Welcome to ChamberCast, the Billings Chamber of Commerce's podcast, brought to you by Payne West Insurance. Workforce issues are the Chamber members' number one priority, and housing supply and affordability is a huge part of that. Thankfully, there is a lot to celebrate after our most recent legislative session. Today, we are going to bring you a pro-housing update with our guests, who were real leaders on this issue at the state capitol, State Representative Katie Zolnikov and State Senator Daniel Zolnikov. Yeah, thank you for having us. I'm also joined today by Dan Brooks, the Billings Chamber's Director of Business Advocacy. Uh, First, we just want to say thank you for your efforts tackling this pro-housing issue, uh, which really hadn't seen much debate until this session. Despite the newness of the topic in Montana, we made major progress. An article from Bloomberg and a policy brief from George Mason University referred to the legislature's housing work as the Montana miracle, recognizing that Montana's package of housing bills far surpassed what many other states hope to accomplish. We're going to talk about those bills today, but can you first set the table and describe the problem uh, leading to our supply and affordability issues? And I want to highlight also that Freddie Mac estimated that the U.S. is 3.8 million housing units short of what a well-functioning housing market requires. So what's causing this housing undersupply? So I think a good place to start is from 2010 to 2020. For every 10 doors we needed built in Montana, only seven were built. And then that ended up ramping up and doubling per year afterwards and that meant that even more houses were being purchased by out-of-staters and our supply was not increasing to keep up with that which then the out-of-state folks and it's not all out-of-state folks we're not here to blame anybody but they came in and our market was already pretty short and not growing sufficiently and then they came in were able to buy uh, homes with cash when the rest of us on a normal income have to do get a mortgage you couple that with, of course, uh, interest rates shooting up um, from a 3% to a 65 to 7%. And you're seeing regular mortgages for a $350,000 home, which used to be the $250,000 home, go from $1,600 a month to about $2,800. Uh, and, you know, on a $60,000 salary, that's just, you can't afford that because, of course, there's not enough homes to keep up with this demand that kept increasing. Yeah, the only thing that I would add is that um, I think, like you mentioned, you know, since 2010, we have not been building enough housing in Montana. So this has been a problem that has actually been sort of building up to like come to this head for over a decade now. And I think with COVID and everybody leaving, you know, their respective areas and wanting to move to Montana, it put it at the forefront of people's minds, which is unfortunate because, you know, it because of what it did to our markets, but it also put it on the forefront of everybody's mind, which I think made it easier to address it in the legislature. And the 2010 to 2020 numbers that it didn't start then. Those are just recent numbers. Mm-hmm. So this has been going on for decades, but that's some of the more recent just to draw paint a good picture. Dan. So it and sounds to me I'm, I'm, I'm going back to like uh, econ 101 and, and we're talking about some supply and demand curves. Demand's going up, but supply is not going up to meet that demand. And so prices are going up. But those are, those are pretty hard to control, especially for a state legislature. You really don't have any uh, power to uh, bar the borders and keep people out from purchasing homes. I mean, if you did, 
we'd, we'd have a lot different, uh, I, I think, political climate here in the state. Especially when we need more workers, but we don't want people to come take our homes, right? Correct. <laughs> so, so, so what are the levers that uh, the legislature does have to control to uh, help address this housing supply issue? Well, you nailed the first one. We cannot stop people from moving in because, trust me, that was the solution offered over and over. Um, so that that was not an option. I just want to put that out there. Uh, it's not how it works. Yeah. So really quick, I think before we get into sort of the maybe specific pieces of legislation that we worked on, how I looked at it, you know, as my position as a legislator is there's this uh, supply and demand problem. So I started looking at the barriers that are stopping an increase of supply. So what I found when I looked at that, um, a lot of it came down to zoning. Um, and that is zoning policy is something that the legislature can uh, make laws on and control versus, you know, like building a wall around Montana and stopping out of staters. <laughs> like that's not in the realm of possibility, but zoning reform very much is. So that is where uh, we focused a lot of our effort. And can, can you just explain for people who aren't necessarily familiar with that, what zoning even is? Yeah. So zoning um, basically is um, a city or a, a municipality will um, decide sort of what areas of the city can be built for what. So the most common type of zoning that you may have heard is single family zoning. That means that you just have a family that one house lives in or one household would live in. So not a duplex or a triplex, but just a single family. And then areas are zoned as single family areas. And that means that's the only type of housing you can build there. So there's single family, there's um, like duplexes all the way up to fourplexes. There's um, commercial zoning, which we'll get into a little bit later. There's multi-use zoning. So it's, it's basically how you, to put it in, in very simple terms, it is just how you use and build on the land. And, and if I could just add on to that, it's a, a, a tool that was uh, conceived and, and really implemented in, in the United States uh, back in the early 1900s and really meant to separate incompatible uses. Uh, you, you don't necessarily want to build uh, your housing right next to your industrial area. So it really was for the uh, public safety, uh, public health and safety component of cities as they, uh, as they were growing. Um, I think one of the things that the legislature recognized is that this has uh, uh, continued to add on additional regulations that have, I would argue, kind of gotten away from that really specific health and safety component, added on form, minimum lot sizes, et cetera. And the accumulation of those regulations has really helped to uh, keep our supply low and thus our, our prices high and housing unaffordable. That's exactly right. It is a... Uh... The, the safety aspect, I mean, you're looking 100 years ago, um, you don't want a huge mine, right, or some type of industrial plant, especially when the, the standards are much lower next to your housing, especially with leakage and who knows what, what could have happened. But now the standards are so high that it's just a different game. And also, as you said, the zoning's used a little bit different. Okay, so I interrupted us a little bit to give a little bit of a basics of zoning. So no, that's okay. How did we? How did you go about addressing that at the legislative session? Well, actually, just to tangent back onto zoning really quickly, um, I had a bill this session. Uh, if you look at our zoning code in our Montana state law, it lists all these things that you can use zoning to address, and like third on the list is morality. 
And that is a little bit odd because when you think about why zoning was originally formed and why it's important, it's for that health and safety aspect. So I had a bill that struck the word morality and it replaced it with incompatible use. So that covers everything from, you know, a mine next to a neighborhood, a casino next to an elementary school. Those are incompatible uses. Um, And that bill passed, I think, both chambers nearly unanimously, if not unanimously, um, but it it was vetoed. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to to insert that really quickly, but now <laughs> no, we can, I, I, now I, I, we can talk think, about the bills. I, I think that's a good segue into talking specifically about those bills that did pass. And if we could just start out here with uh, yours, Senators Olnikov, uh, Senate Bill 245, uh, allowing multifamily and mixed-use house in commercial areas, uh, and then adjusting parking requirements as well. Can you talk a little bit about the specifics there? Yeah. So I had the fun of working with developers who said we would love to build some multifamily and mixed-use development in commercial zones. And mixed-use would be like first level would be shops, and second, third level would be uh, apartments. And multifamily would just be five or more units and that could fit well in a commercial zone. They said, we think this is a great idea because people, especially younger people want to live where they work. That makes sense. So we want to be able to build more, except every time we try to build more in cities across Montana, we get denied. So the question came of that was parking and this, the bill limits how much parking uh, that is required for multifamily and mixed use in commercial zones. My counter was why well, I lived downtown for like five years and it's very cool with a parking garage because when people go to downtown billings, they park. And if you're living downtown and work somewhere else, you would be driving out of downtown billings while the uh, typical folks are driving in to work at wherever downtown during the business day. And then during the evening, those folks would go back and leave, go home to the Heights or West End. And when you come back, you go into an empty parking garage and you get double usage of the parking. And that's the same with a lot of street parking. Now, Friday, Saturday night might be a little busy, but still a lot of those parking garages are open. So we're double using typical single parking spots. No, I think that's a great point. Uh, And and I just want to add on, I want to say that a recent estimate I read had the number of parking spots per car in America at something like six to one. Uh, So we have these policy preferences for what I would say housing for cars rather than housing for people. Uh, And as it relates to billings, your bill reduced parking requirements for mixed-use developments that currently require two parking spaces per dwelling unit to one per dwelling unit. So if we were to have, say, a 100 housing unit mixed-use development, that would have previously required 200 parking spaces. This takes that down to 100 and at an estimate that I put together here, uh, that's a land savings of about two thirds of a touchdown drive. If you, you're, you're thinking about a football field as, as, as far as the space goes. So 66 yards worth of space savings that could go to green space, that could go to uh, additional housing, perhaps, uh, rather than parking these concrete uh, jungles that we've really created in our city. So I think that's going to be really impactful here. That's exactly right. And that's the thing people aren't like thinking about in some of this is that the uh, land costs a lot. And if you make sure that two thirds, three fourths, four fifths of that land has to be parking, that means you have to have a very small structure that has to be able to pay off everything, which means now those rents have to pay for that additional parking and that land versus spreading it over more apartments. Costs would go down, basic economics again. 
but somehow that gets lost in translation. And that's why we're here to try to fix some of these problems. Kind of moving on here, we've, we've talked about the high house, uh, high cost of uh, land. Uh, Representative, would you mind going over Senate Bill 323, which you had carried uh, on the House side? That was uh, Senator Trebus's bill prohibiting exclusionary zoning. What, what is exclusionary zoning? What does this bill do? I would love to get into this bill. Um, so what this bill does, um, in a nutshell, is everywhere in the state of Montana that's zoned as single family, um, now it's what's called a um, by right use that you can have a duplex. So in simpler terms, what that means is if you live in a single family home, um, you can convert your basement. You can kind of do whatever you want, but you can have a duplex and the city can't tell you that, you know, you're not zoned for this. You can't do this. Um, so this bill kind of went through a journey. It started out as um, this would be allowed for any housing up to fourplex and that passed the Senate. So good job, Senate. Um, however, once it got to the House, uh, we had to make a couple compromises for the bill to pass. So um, it we chopped it down to duplexes. We fiddled with some of the details. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if you live in an area that's zoned for single family, it is a it is your right, your by right usage to um, have a duplex. So this is really important for a lot of different reasons. Um, when you look at housing and the cost of housing, a lot of that, like, well, as we mentioned earlier, land is very, it, that's the most expensive part of building. Um, but infrastructure is expensive too. So if I per se wanted, you know, convert my house to a duplex, I already have the land and I already have all the infrastructure. So being able to do that um, takes some of the more expensive parts of developing new housing and it just sort of creates it. Um, creating housing out of the the resources where do you have? Yeah, yeah. It, so you don't you're not building anything new. You're not you know expanding the outskirts of town. You're just putting a little apartment in your basement and renting that out. And and do you maybe add? making your home that you are paying twenty eight hundred dollar mortgage on a little bit more affordable with someone renting out the basement for a thousand, and they also get a place to live because maybe a thousand dollars is the cheapest that they can find. Yeah, it's this, only a win-win scenario. This bill is good for so many different reasons. So, as Daniel just mentioned, yeah, you know, mortgages are expensive, interest rates are expensive. If you can find a way to house hack a little bit and rent out your basement, then that makes it more affordable for you. That also creates a more affordable option for that person. But on another, like, you know, you can have your mother live down there, an elderly parent, and then wherever they're living, if they're living in a home you know, that will open up. It, it's just, it's good for a lot of, a lot of different reasons. And it really does expand housing without having to create new neighborhoods. And, and I would even point to, if it is a, a, a new construction opportunity uh, for uh, folks that are in a single family zone can now do duplex, uh, right? They can add more housing, can share the costs there for that infrastructure for that land. You mentioned those are kind of uh, some of the more expensive components of development. Uh, when we look at and, and how this impacts Billings, when we look at our uh, zoning here in Billings, a majority of our residential zoning uh, is single family only. So, uh, and a lot of that is large lot uh, single family owning. So, you, you have uh, really a prescription and a preference for 
the least dense housing type, uh, and it's also by uh, uh, by definition the most expensive. So we have this policy preference for expensive, least dense housing. This bill allows to, you to add more housing onto those lots by right uh, and help to address this housing affordability issue. That's right. And one thing we didn't talk about was step-up homes. So you move from your parents' house, graduate college, and then you go to an apartment and maybe you want to buy a home, but you aren't ready for a huge commitment. You can do a town home. That is a lower cost home and you can start working your way up. Well, step-up homes, townhomes, even duplex, which is, which is not maybe something you own, but a, a rental situation, that whole market apparently has gotten smaller over the years. And what's gone, what has grown again is single-family homes. So there is no step-up. And that means you can't get in there and build up some equity and pay that down and then have a huge amount of money to pay off part of your new mortgage for your house. And we've taken that away from people. And I don't think most folks recognize it. What do you say to people who are concerned that, you know, they bought a house in a single family neighborhood under on the understanding that the whole neighborhood was going to be single family and they worry that, you know, rental units are going to go in next door and all that kind of stuff and uh, harm the character of the neighborhood or drive their property values down or anything like that? The elephant in the room, neighborhood character. <laughs> um, so we heard about this a lot in the legislature, um, and that's like one of the reasons that this bill went from fourplex to duplex. And what I would say to that is where I live in my neighborhood, um, it's zoned for, for multifamily, so you can have duplexes and I think maybe even up to dry or fourplexes. And one of the reasons that we went to duplex is it doesn't really change the outside look of the house. So I won't, I won't try to sit here and say that if you bulldoze your house and build a fourplex, it's going to look the same because it probably won't. But if you convert your house to a duplex, chances are people from the outside won't be able to tell. When you have a duplex, you typically have, you know, a person, a family living in it. Well, those are kind of the only options, but (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't add a terrible burden on parking. Um, and it, it's just, it's a lot, I think it, I think it may, if you're concerned about neighborhood character, I think a duplex won't completely deteriorate neighborhood character. Actually, there's no proof that it will have any financial impact on your investment of a home. And second, I think it's great if people with different backgrounds live next to each other, not to basically zone out entire groups based on income that I live in this very nice high-end area and uh, god forbid somebody not to that economic standard lives next to me i think that is shameful in the least so yeah that's my approach on it i I think when you look back in the history of uh zoning and uh, the use of neighborhood character arguments uh unfortunately a lot of times it had to do with segregating populations uh and often due to racism issues so um you know that's not to say that that uh, people are uh, only concerned with that. I, I think some have genuine concerns about uh, their their property values. Uh, but I would point to um, uh, the author uh, Matthew Iglesias in his book, uh, "The Rent Is Too Damn High." He says something to the effect of, uh, "We've gone from a system in which owning property meant you could do what what you want with that property 
to one in which owning property means you have a veto right on other people's property. And I think we need to go back to uh, the, uh, the former there. That was a point I love to make during the legislature. I would always say it doesn't, it, when people would talk about the argument of local control, I would just say it doesn't get any more local than the property owner. Like my, my property rights do not extend over my neighbor's fence as much as I may want them to at times. I mean, I have great neighbors, but in theory, um, that's not how it works. Also, I would just like to add that um, a couple days ago, a new house on my street went up for sale. So I'm nosy. And of course, I had to look at the Zillow listing and it's a duplex. I had no idea. I would have never known from looking at it. I've lived there for, you know, two years now. There's no signs or parking or anything that would have led me to believe that. So. Her world didn't come crashing in on her. <laughs> the sun still rose the next day. <laughs> kind, kind of keeping to the, uh, the theme of doing what you want with your property. Let's talk about Senate Bill 528. And, and I'll throw this one to you again, Representative, having carried it on the House floor. This is uh, Senator Hertz's bill on accessory dwelling units. What is an accessory dwelling unit and why could this potentially help with housing? An accessory dwelling unit, or ADU, as a lot of people refer to them as, is um, a mother-in-law suite. It's a small um, like cottage or dwelling that is not part of the main house. So if you have drove through a historical neighborhood, you have probably seen these on old houses and thought, wow, that's really cool. And then at some point along the lines of history, we decided those were not cool anymore, but... Um, Legislature decided that they are cool again. So ADUs are back. <laughs> very simplified version. So I think, I think to the points you made earlier about the benefits of the duplex, many of those uh, are covered here with the accessory dwelling units as well. Yes. So, an eight, so what this bill did is, and what all of these bills do, I think it's important to know, is that um, Montana is sort of like before the session, we had this patchwork. So like Billings is really good in some areas. Um, with like minimum lot sizes and, and other things. And then like Daniel mentioned, you know, Bozeman struggles with these things, but it's it's a patchwork. And there's a whole host of problems that I won't get into right now um, of why having policies that are the same everywhere is creates a more consistent housing market and why that's important. What this bill did and what all of these bills do is it evens the playing field everywhere. So there were cities that um, allowed ADUs and they came in and opposed the bill because they said, well, no one's doing it. And I said, well, if you're doing it and it's fine, then why are you here to say that other people should? It's it's actually kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Um, but anyways, so what this bill do, does is like the duplexes, it makes an ADU um, allowed by right on your property. So Imagine that you own your property and if you want to build a smaller little um, house or small apartment in the back, you can do that. Um, so like Daniel mentioned, we had to make a, a few compromises when the bills got to the house. So it's not quite that simple. Um, so the ADUs can be either square footage wise, they can be a thousand square feet or 80% of the primary dwelling, whatever is less. Um, it removes additional parking requirements, which was huge. Um, that was something that I was not willing to compromise on because if you are allowed to do an ADU, but you need to have all of these parking spaces, well, if you're doing this in a neighborhood, how do you create more parking spaces? So this is what's called, um, a lot of times cities do this where, um, you can 
you can technically do something, but the requirements to do it make it impossible. Yeah, it's a poison pill that's so expensive or takes so long that it basically kills the project. So they just, they're under the guise that you can actually do it, but really they make it so hard that, that they, you can't do yeah. it. Well, um, I'll, I'll point out that here in to that point, uh, in, in Billings, technically ADUs were allowed in our N3 suburban family zones, uh, but you had to go through a special review which means uh, neighborhood meeting, you got to go through the zone, uh, zoning committee, it's got to get passed by city council. So it's a pretty lengthy and expensive process. And your average homeowner isn't going to know how to navigate the process. So they got to hire a guy as an agent uh, to go through this, and that's going to cost them additional money. Like you said, it just creates these onerous barriers to uh, creating these accessory dwelling units. And then some people might just do it on their own anyway and say, why would I follow that? I own my property and now they're in trouble when actually they're weirdly kind of helping the housing crisis by creating more <laughs> options, right? So you put people in a, a tough spot when you use rules and regulations and laws in that manner. And if I could just one more on the parking, thank you so much for holding strong on uh, ensuring that that parking requirement got kept out. On my street, I am one of two people that actually parks their car in their garage in, in one of my two parking spaces that the government said had to be there. Everybody else is on the street. So here we had this parking mandate that, you know, builders have to build and people have to pay for and nobody uses it. They put all their junk in there. It's mm. all storage area, right? So even, even with the good intent of uh, city government trying to have people park off the street and out of the right of way, they still do it anyways because they've got all this extra storage for all their boats and their junk uh, that they have. So uh, thanks again for, for holding fast on that parking requirement. Of course. <laughs> but the, the, what's interesting too is like you buy a house, four bedroom, say you have four, three kids and you and your spouse and there are teenagers. You just got five new vehicles in that neighborhood. There's no parking requirement if I buy a normal house and do that. But they're worried about a few ADUs being built that one person could be living in and that's going to ruin everything. But like, it, didn't, it didn't level up. So another thing, um, I, I was looking for this statistic because I didn't want to mess it up. Um, but back to the parking thing, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned people not parking in their garages because I think that that's actually a really common thing. You know, when I was growing up, like twice a year, we'd clean the garage and park in it, and it was like a special thing. <laughs> but <laughs> most of the time, you just park on the driveway or park on the street. Um, so I, I think that it's really interested, interesting that we are, you know, we're so concerned about parking when garages are typically used storage and there are over 23 million storage units in the United States. So that's one for every 14 people person, wow. one for every 14. Person. Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy that we put such a high emphasis on this and it, it that's not really related to housing, but kind of is like it all, it all ties together. Uh, absolutely. I, I, we, we are creating these policy prescriptions uh housing for cars over housing for people and it's it's really just showing the preference the policy preference here do we value automotive transport or people living in homes and i think unfortunately it's more towards the former right now yeah and the housing for cars is becoming housing for stuff so it's just it's crazy but anyway back to adus um sorry that was a bit of a tangent there um but yeah, so this is another bill that just, and 
I think with this bill and with the duplex bill, it's important to note that is every single person going to do this? Realistically, no. I carried all these bills through the house and I have no desire to convert my house to a duplex. I'm not going to build an ADU in my backyard, at least not anytime soon. And I mean, never say never, I guess, but don't, I don't have any plans for it. So realistically, not everybody is going, going to do this, but the people that do do it, you know, they are maybe, like I said earlier, their elderly parents can live in the ADU. Maybe their kid, you know, just graduated college, is trying to find a place to stay, they can stay in the ADU. Maybe they're just trying to earn extra income and they can rent out that ADU. And in all three of those scenarios, it doesn't really matter why they're doing it because somebody that didn't have housing before does now. And it's affordable. Yeah, I think that's important. It's really a, a great incremental opportunity for uh, adding housing to our to our housing stock. Even if, uh, and maybe this is being optimistic, if we had 50 ADUs in a year, I think that's a win for our housing situation in Billings. So if I could kind of move on uh, here, one of the other bills, Senate Bill 382, creating the Montana Land Use Planning Act. I kind of wanted to, to just uh, make a few remarks on this one really uh, kind of comprehensively revises our uh, land use planning laws in Montana. I want to point to just two sections of that bill that I think are going to have really big impacts. The first is the section 10 for all those reading uh, along at home. <laughs> uh, this actually requires uh, cities to do an analysis of their uh, current housing stock and needs over the next 10 years considering new population growth. So this is going to be new for cities to do. Uh, they haven't done that in the past. So I think just knowing and having the data to show what they need to have as far as housing stock to uh, make up for any population changes is going to be a big, uh, big win and have good impact on our discussion on housing supply and affordability. Secondly, then, the bill says uh, here is a menu, a list of options for additional housing reform that you can put into place to help you meet those needs over the next 20 years. Uh, and, and in that list, there's 14 different options. We've already talked about three of those today uh, that cities can implement. Uh, but one uh, is uh, also uh, the, the policy from a bill that Representative you carried, uh, House Bill 337. It did not pass on its own, but that policy uh, uh, topic got put into this uh, this bill as a menu option for cities to implement, and that is reducing and or eliminating minimum lot sizes. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? Yeah. So um, House Bill 337, I sponsored, and it reduced minimum lot size. So what that means is that a lot of times in different cities, and like I said, it's, it's kind of different across the state, um, but there is a minimum lot. So if I buy land and then I want to develop it and create housing out of it, I have to have each lot be a certain amount of square footage. So sometimes, um, like in Billings, Billings got rid of minimum lot sizes a couple years ago and just um, implemented setbacks. In other cities, it is 7,000 square feet. So if you think about it, as we've kind of drilled in in this podcast, um, land is the most expensive part of housing. So if you are required to have 7,000 square feet and that is your lot, are you going to build a small house on that 7,000 square feet? Because the cost of that house has to pay for the land. The land by itself doesn't generate money. Um, like having a lawn, that doesn't, that doesn't really make money. So it's, it, 
de-incentivizes building smaller, more affordable housing. That's why a lot of times the new construction that you see are either these, you know, sort of like mega complexes or they're these like $400,000, $500,000 houses that are really large because that's what makes economic sense for the developer. And again, like going back to, to basic economic ideas, but like I, I think developers kind of get a bad they get a bad rap sometimes um, from people and they think that they're all evil. And it's like, well, they have to make money too. We can't expect a developer to, that are held to these requirements, you know, from the powers that be, we can't expect them to just say, well, that's okay. I'm just going to lose money on this entire development. Like that's not realistic. That's not how the world works. So the aim with this bill was to reduce that minimum lot size and then in turn, inspire um, smaller houses. And one thing that was a huge misconception is that this is required. You can never build a big house again, which is not at all what the bill says. It just says, you know, you can build as big as you want. You can buy 12 acres. You can build a mansion. It doesn't matter. You just, the, the government can't force you to build something that's large. You are allowed to build small houses. I think that's a really good segue. Speaking of the need for our developers, they have to make a profit and make a living as well. So why can't, why can't the government say, developers, you need to set aside 20% of your units as uh, technically affordable? Or why can't we establish uh, caps on rent, what renters can charge? The legislatures decided that's not a good policy. Uh, the Billings Chamber would agree with that. But, but, but why is that? I think that people have this weird expectation. If you set this cap, that's it. Now you'll be saving t people a ton of money on rents. Um, but then you'll have a problem called a lot of people will be in line and there will only be so many that will be available. And then developers realize they have to put all this money into these other developments that either aren't profitable or they're only profitable because the cost they save for the low cost uh, housing, they have to then make up in the other housing, which is now going to be even more expensive. So it's a cost shift where you have to wait in line for these to be available, which is the biggest thing about caps or uh, um, ceilings, like price ceilings is the line. Yes, we have them, but there's only 500 and a thousand people need them. And so now you just remove market forces that allow a more, uh, I guess, more simple, but free approach of this is what's needed, this is what we can build to, and you try to uh, regulate everything. And nobody sees the unintended consequences of the extra costs, the extra burdens, and the negative incentive to actually develop more, which we were trying to get to the root of the problems. We need to develop more and create those incentives. And I always like to say, you know what a housing, affordable housing is? It's a 30-year-old house or a 20-year-old apartment because that apartment was, was once the nice apartment in town. And I'm not saying it has to be run down, but then there's brand new apartments, which people will pay more to go into. And you'll pay a little bit less for the 10-year-old apartment, but less for the 20-year-old apartment. Same with the housing, except when you don't build enough new houses, then our 60-year-old house is worth as much as a brand new house, which is, should have a ton of depreciation with it because there should have been a lot more houses. What, do you, what about people who say that uh, public housing should be part of the solution? You know, a similar sort of thing where uh, that we talked about in the context of, of healthcare, that there should be some sort of public option to compete with the private sector and kind of keep it honest. Like, 
should why shouldn't the state or cities be uh just going in and building housing and and you know keeping that at a controlled rate or something like that well my argument is that the reason we have a housing crisis is because governments and this is no one's fault i don't get a point to a single person but they used a tool as people wanted them to, and it slowly eroded uh, the marketplace for housing. So now we're going to turn around and take taxpayer dollars to create housing for something of which our own housing policies within our governments created. So why don't we just get to the root of the problems, which is what all these are of 50 years ago or even further, and get to it versus just patch it and fund it. I'll tell you the easiest thing to do in Helena sometimes is not to fix a problem. It's to subsidize one. Sometimes you need to do a quick fix on a long-term problem, but you know what? Sometimes you need to address the root of it so we're not back in 20 years doing this again. Yeah, I'd, I'd offer the uh, very simplistic, uh, you're taking an aspirin because you're hitting yourself in your head with a hammer. <laughs> So the bills we talked about today are largely exactly what you just said. They deal with removing regulations that are standing in the way of, of developing housing. But there are a number of other factors that still stand in the way of, of housing abundance. You know, negative neighborhood opposition, supply chain issues. Um, then there's still some local government zones on, zoning on the book. And of course, we have to have people to in the workforce to actually build these these houses. And if you if they can't afford to live in a house either, then we've we've still got problems there. So there's still work to be done on this issue. Um, and considering that, you know, we we have a fairly engaged audience on this. How would you recommend that people get involved on this issue? What can our listeners do to help on this? Well, I would I mean, I think if you're if you've listened to the podcast for this long, you, you are somewhat interested in in this topic. So I would a I would implore everybody to just kind of research the history of zoning because it's often talked about as this thing that is absolutely vital for like cities to thrive. It's like, you know, a water line, but it's really not, <laughs> it, it, not to the extent that it's used anyways. Um, so I would first, I would just read about that because it, it is extremely interesting. And second, you know, you can always, if you feel passionately about this, you can always talk to your elected officials, whether that's... You need to talk to your elected yeah, officials. Well, yeah. <laughs> Don't make it optional. You need to. Yeah. I. Yeah. We're always down to get coffee, whether it's city council, and legislators. because we're working on it. We, yeah. I, I guess now would, be, now would be the time to maybe have the caveat of, it's lovely to come in here in August and talk about all the wins that we had this session in these bills, but this was not easy. This there's a reason that it was called the Montana miracle. Like this was not easy. And even, you know, it's and it's every, you find allies in weird places and you find enemies in weird places, too. Um, so talk to your elected officials, send them a message, tell them that, you know, you liked what you heard and you you're you're happy about this duplex bill because <laughs> there were um, as, as happy and as passionate as we are for this. Um, there are people out there that are equally passionate against it oh yeah people think we have ruined neighborhood character across the whole state and i that doesn't resonate well with me <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm from a small town um i just have a different viewpoint on things like that well, so I, I think that's a really important point much of what what i've read recently in the housing debate revolves around people's involvement in housing issues zoning 
code rewrites, et cetera. And oftentimes the people who get most engaged are those who are already living in their uh, neighborhood that they don't want any change. They That's want right. the status quo. They want absolute stasis. And, and our local elected officials oftentimes don't hear from the renters who are fed up with, with high rents or people who can't find a house because they're ready to start their, their family in their first home, but it's just not out there for them. So folks need to get much more engaged and louder, I would say, than the small group of people that come to the zoning commission meetings or that go to city council to complain about any, any increment of new density in their neighborhoods. Lots of opportunity for folks to have their voices heard. Yeah, there's a there's that we the haves and have nots, and it's very easy when people already have something going for them to kind of listen to them because they're the ones who invested already, and these people have not yet done so. But I'd say there is quite a big crew of us who can really relate to the more that have not category and said this is not acceptable, and uh, we're going to change something about it. But what you mentioned was. Only a few states in the entire country pass laws like these. These seem like very simple laws. Oh, you allowed a duplex. Oh, you allowed ADUs. Oh, you allowed multifamily mixed use and zone in commercial areas. Makes a lot of sense. This was very hard to do. I think four states have passed some type of package like that, and almost every other state failed. Okay. And Montana kind of a unique group of characters out here, but we hit the nail on the head. We stood for property rights and what you can do with that property. Again, this was governor priorities in places like Colorado, I believe, and it failed. Yeah, failed in, failed in Colorado, failed in Arizona. A lot of stuff failed in, in Washington and California. Red states, blue states, it failed. And in some states, the Democrats were like, against the bills and other states republicans were against the bills it was some states both parties were against the bills because they could relate more to the neighborhood character argument than the fact that people need housing it was this fascinating this is yeah. not a traditional political uh, issue yeah i'll share that this was this was my favorite part of working during this legislative session getting to work with like uh the frontier institute and americans for prosperity on one side of the spectrum and then you've got forward montana and associated students of msu or um uh right all across the political spectrum working on this this very necessary housing issue. Yeah, this was truly, truly a bipartisan effort. It was it was really, really cool to be a part of it and to to work with so many people and have everyone, you know, so fired up about the same thing. It was cool. So people need to read up and then they need to contact their legislators. And on both fronts, uh, your first stop should be the Billings Chamber website. Dan has put a lot of effort into developing a whole pro-housing database of scholarly articles and books and podcasts that you can check out to get more information on this. And then we, have, of course, have contact info for legislators on our website as well. Uh, I'll also note that there's a city council election coming up this fall, which people should definitely be engaged in as well. So three, three thank yous. One for Senator Friedel. He chaired the Senate Local Government Committee. And he was extremely supportive and helped get a lot of these bills through, former city councilman in Billings. Second one, Representative Larry Brewster, former city council member of Billings, also chaired the House Local Government Committee and was, again, supportive of this legislation. Third, I'm going to say thank you to Dan Brooks because he seemed to be <laughs> one of the only people who understood these issues probably better than some of us and cared about it and has been watching it for years and has put together all this information. It is very nice to have such a um, well-read and studied uh, 
ally in this battle. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Much appreciated. Is there anything we didn't touch on today that you'd really like to? Uh, anything that we missed? The only thing that I would add is, you know, if, if you are out there, you're trying to find housing, you're ready to buy your home. I understand how frustrating it can be. And just know that we really went to, we tried to address the root of these problems. So I would just ask to keep your hopes up and be patient um, when you, it's kind of the, the band-aid versus the, you know, like finding the, the root of the problem. So it takes time. It's not like housing is going to change with a snap of a finger tomorrow. Um, but all of these policies hopefully inspire change that lasts, you know, over decades. So that's the only thing I would add. That's right. It, it is. I mean, that's the thing. These aren't short-term solutions because they weren't short-term problems. But with like Katie carried three of these bills through the House floor. She did an amazing job and she understood them. She negotiated them and got them to the governor's desk. So I guess my last thank you would be to her for doing all the due diligence that us senators just passed the, the big, the big, the big, huge pieces. And she had to narrowly define them to get them into law. So thank you to her as well. And thank you both very much for your time today. I really appreciate all the work that you've done. Thank you so much to Representative and Senator Zolnikov for joining us today. Thank you to Dan for co-hosting. And thank you very much to Payne West for sponsoring this podcast. If you'd like to suggest a topic or ask a question, please feel free to email us at podcast at billingschamber.com. Make sure to check the show notes for where you can learn more about everything that we talked about today. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on your preferred platform or recommend us to a friend. Don't forget to subscribe to Chambercast wherever you get your podcasts because there is something here for everyone.